0: that you're gathering here why is it that you come to this place if your neighbours who see you every Sunday coming out stopped you and said why is it you go to church I wonder what your answer would be well I'm going to give you an answer this morning it's a simple answer and your answer would be it's because of the gospel It's because of the gospel. If you want to turn to Romans chapter 1, it's where we're going to focus our thinking this morning. The answer you could give is the gospel. And uh, it's the reason that we're Christians. The gospel? That's the very reason we're Christians. It's the reasons we gather every Lord's Day and as we gather in the week. It's the reasons we are who we are and we do what we do. It's because of the gospel. In fact, a Christian and a Christian church stands or falls on this issue of the gospel. It is central To the Christian, to the Christian life and the Christian church. There are false gospels. I'm encouraged that the New Testament talks about false gospels, not just in our day. Paul had to write a complete letter, the letter to the churches in Galatia, he had to write a complete letter. About people who are trying to preach a false gospel. They were trying to change, or they were changing the true gospel, which he says is not a gospel, is not the gospel. And if you're wrong on the gospel, you'll be wrong in every area of your thinking in terms of spiritual things. You must be right on the gospel. And Romans is about the gospel. Is a very good small commentary I loaned it to someone about three weeks ago to help a young Christian read through Romans and she hasn't given me back yet so and and um, it's one of these undated devotion books very simple by David Cook. And David Cook was previously the theological principal in Australia and uh, had been a pastor before he went into the college and he told the story on one occasion about a friend of his who was a Roman Catholic, and they met at the school gates. Uh, they used to take their children to school, meet there, and their children were interested in sports, so they'd meet on the sports field and got to know each other really well, David Cook and this guy. And uh, on one occasion, David Cook was doing a preaching tour in Europe, and he was stopping off in Italy to, to go around Rome. And he told his friend, who's a Roman Catholic, and his friend said to him, Oh, would you like a ticket? for an audience with the Pope. David Cook said, quietly, yes. <laughs> he, didn't want, he didn't want the theological college to know. Uh, uh, but he said, yeah, I'd like to. And, uh, and so this guy, it's true, by the way, it's true. Um, this guy uh, got him uh, an invitation for an audience with the Pope. And it was a, a card, and it got instructions with it, and uh, uh, when he got to Rome, he was to go to uh, uh, St. Peter's and to the square there and, and, and to sit on, the, on an inside seat where the aisle was in the middle. And at the end of the service, the Pope would come down and you'd be able to speak to the Pope. So it wasn't really a private audience because there were thousands there. And there were lots of people who got tickets for the inside seats. And so he arrives in Rome, he goes, and uh, however, uh, due to a a party of Russian Roman Catholics, the Pope never got as far as David Cook. And um, all the time since he left Australia, he'd been thinking, what should I say to him? If I had the opportunity to speak to the Pope, what should I say to him? And he thought of three words. Rome needs Romans, Rome needs Romans, meaning this letter in the Bible, Rome needs this message that's in the Bible here, and you find it in Romans, in fact you could say the whole letter is about the gospel, it's about the gospel. It's it's about what the gospel is. That's chapters 1 to 11. And chapters 12 to the end is how to live in the light of the gospel. So this, this letter is all about the gospel. But not only does Rome need Romans, we need Romans. And the world needs Romans. Because it gives us uh, such a picture of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, this message of the gospel had impacted Europe many years ago. Among others, among desperately seeking assurance of salvation, read some words from chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And that monk, reading those words, the righteous will live by faith, came to an assurance of salvation and through him, and others who were converted around the same time, we have what we now know historically as the Reformation, which affected the whole of Europe and church history. He discovered, he discovered the secret of the gospel, what the gospel was. Up to this point, he had thought that the gospel was all about what I do. And he had no peace. If you think that's what being a Christian is all about, it's about what you do, you'll never have any peace. And he came to discover the gospel is what God has done and does do. He came to discover, that, and and others have come to discover, many, many, many people have come to discover that the gospel is based upon the scriptures alone. And it's by grace alone, in Christ alone, by faith alone in him, to God's glory. And so we need the gospel. All of us. And we need to have confidence in the gospel as Christians. And in these verses, verses 16 and 17, um, in a sense, it feels a bit as if the gospel is almost being downplayed when he says for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew then to the Gentile for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, the righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it's written the righteous will live by faith now what does the gospel mean? Well it means good news doesn't it? Now one, one One man says, "Uh, okay, there's good news and good news, isn't there? There's good news and good news. This is not just good news. This is great news. This is glorious news. This is astounding news. This is amazing news. This is dynamic news. This is unique news. This is wonderful news. That's the gospel. That's what good news means this morning. It's as big as that and bigger. It's like that time when a cure is found for a for a disease that it's never been found before. And it's amazing. It's, it's, it's like that time when there's a ceasefire after the war. And the arms are laid down, the, the weapons are laid down, and there's peace at last. It's, it's like that man in the Bible who was being questioned about, about what had happened to him. And he says, Look, all I can tell you, the religious leaders, all I can tell you is this once I was blind, but now I can see. <laughs> Great news. And they, religious leaders are all standing there questioning him. How had this happened? Who did it? They couldn't see the greatness of what had happened to this man. He'd been born blind and now he could see he'd met Jesus. And so what Paul is doing here, he's reveling in the gospel. That's what he's doing. Paul is reveling in the gospel here. And throughout this letter, he revels in the gospel. He's rejoicing in the gospel. He's confident of the gospel. He evidently loves the gospel. But of course, quite interestingly, the amazing nature of the gospel is because of something that is bad news. You see, what Paul does is he shows us here why the gospel is such great news, such amazing news, by also telling us something about ourselves and the world in which we live which is bad news. And if you want bad news, my dear friends, put on News at 10 or whatever news program you watch. And it doesn't matter what news program you want, it's all bad news, isn't it? In fact, sometimes they have to go out of their way just before the end of the news to put something in which sounds good, doesn't it? There's so much bad news, and there is. Desperately Evil bad news, day after day. Crime and fraud, terrorism, corruption. And we could go through in detail, and in a sense, I didn't have time to read this morning, but you have the time to read from verse 18 of chapter 1 right through to chapter uh, 3, verse 20, I think it is. Paul catalogues the problem with the world. Of course there are some good things that happen in the world. Paul is not saying that. There are good things. I was watching um, um, some of the cricket this weekend. I'm not sure I, I didn't hear the final score yesterday, so don't anybody disappoint me. I want to have a good Sunday. Um, uh, but but a former England captain was interviewed during um, the day and uh, sadly his wife had passed away I think either last year or the year before and he'd set up a foundation and they were raising money for uh, for investigation into a rare form of lung cancer, which was not caused by smoking and that's good isn't it there's lots of good things but what paul is saying here is this the problem there is a problem with the world and there's a problem with the world because there's a problem with us and that's what he goes on to describe here in in this section you can see how verse 18 let's just look at that the wrath of god He's being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So, immediately, we have a problem. And the problem here that Paul highlights is the problem of the wrath of God against sin. God's reaction to all that is opposed to him. You see, the world is not as it was intended to be by God. The world was created by God perfect, and humanity was created by God in His image perfect, in a right relationship with Him. Adam and Eve had that perfect right relationship with God. They loved God, they enjoyed God, they worshiped God, they served God, they knew God. And then our first parents mistrusted God and believed the lie of Satan, were tempted to do wrong, and they disobeyed God and subsequently fell from good to bad. And humanity, since then, has been under God's just wrath. God's just wrath. Jesus, on one occasion, was being criticized because he didn't do some of the things that the religious leaders did, like these two to. Be very careful about washing their hands, not because they got dirty, but as an act of cleansing. Thinking that somehow that cleansing would make them fit to come to God. And he said to them, you've got the wrong idea completely. That your problem is not outwardly, your problem is with the heart because out of the heart comes wickedness, comes evil, comes murder, comes thieving. Everything imaginable, it comes out of the human heart. There is no sin of which I am not capable of committing. That's how bad my heart is, naturally. I have to tell you, that's how bad your heart is, and that's not my diagnosis, that's the Bible's diagnosis. He goes on to describe what we might call the pagan world in chapter 1, a world that doesn't have any room for God. In fact, in verse 28 he says, furthermore, just as they didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. And that's what uh, our society has become. Our society has thought, well, we, we don't need the idea of God anymore. And, in, in, and then this society is reaping what it's sowing. It's turning away from the light of the gospel that was being preached here for generations, for years, for centuries, and now is lost in its hopeless wickedness. But Paul doesn't only speak about a world as it were like that, but he speaks in, in chapter two and three, he speaks about people who may have, as it were, a good moral conscience and a good moral set of values. Perhaps they've had some values uh, taught them in their family or uh, and they've imbibed these values, believed them to be good. They don't have any particular rigid, religious conviction. Uh, and then he talks also about the Jews who are from uh, a background of knowledge of God and they had the privilege of having God's word and God's prophets sent to them over the years and... Uh, and he says, but he says, the problem is, he says, it doesn't matter whether you talk about somebody from a pagan background, a completely godless background, or someone who listens to their conscience, because God speaks to us through our conscience. He speaks to us through creation. He speaks to us in different ways, and, and some people recognize that by conscience, that there are things that they shouldn't do. And then there are people who, who find themselves in a religion. And that religion has a measure of control over their life, over their behavior. But, but it's outward. It doesn't actually deal with their hearts. And what he concludes halfway through chapter 3 is this. It doesn't matter what background you come from. The problem is we all have the same problem. It's all, our hearts are not right with God. And that's where we all found this morning, in that situation. And the problem is this, that God cannot react to sin in any other way but in wrath. But what is the wrath of God? It's this, let me quote. The wrath of God, his pure, and perfect antagonism to evil is directed against all who deliberately suppress what they know to be true and right in order to go their own way. For everybody has some knowledge of God and of goodness, whether through creation, conscience, or the moral law written on the heart or the law of Moses. You see, what he's saying is this. The wrath of God is his pure and perfect antagonism to evil. That's his settled position. How could he be God if he was anything else? And deep down in our hearts, we would want a God that's opposed to evil. And the reason for God's wrath against us is that our sin is not accidental. It's deliberate, deliberate. It's inexcusable. We've all broken God's laws. We've all been guilty of going our own way, not his way. We're all unable to reach the standard that he has required for fellowship with him. We just That's how we are. But God isn't indifferent to this. He hates sin, and he must punish sin. That's the problem. But that's why Paul revels in the gospel. That's why he revels in the gospel, because what he did, he sees the hopelessness of the human condition spiritually, absolutely hopelessness, and then he realizes, you see, and he expresses. The gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he's saying. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why isn't he ashamed of the gospel? Well, I'll give you some reasons why he's not ashamed of the gospel. Because the gospel comes from God. That's what he says in verse 1, isn't it? Paul, a servant of Christ, Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel is good news because it's God... Dealing with this problem. You wouldn't expect that, would you? If somebody's wronged us, what do we expect? We expect them to be the answer to the problem, don't we? You come and apologize to me. But no. Although the world has turned its back upon God, the gospel, the good news of salvation, the great news, the amazing news of salvation, comes from the God who made us. It originated in him. It didn't originate in us. Well, you know what religions... Religions who originate with men usually say this. Do this, do this, do this, do this. Go here, go there, go... And somehow, you will achieve a relationship with God. No, no, no. That's not what God... God has a different plan. The offended God is the God who has planned... The gospel of salvation. This gospel is amazing news because it's from God. It's the gospel of God. But it's, it's the gospel that he, he went out on a limb and predicted beforehand, before the gospel was seen in all its greatness and all its beauty, uh, God sent messages throughout the whole Old Testament period, prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He sent his prophets, and he spoke to his people, and he spoke about the gospel that was to come, and he predicted it. In a sense, he had everything to lose if it wasn't true. And over and over again, we're told that, uh, verse 2, the gospel promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son as to his earthly life so the gospel was promised in the scriptures so in fact when Jesus came into the world the the, the people of the day, the, the Jews of the day were able to open their Old Testaments and read about the promised Messiah, the promised gospel because God had promised it, predicted it, he predicted so many details, it's incredible predicted that Jesus would be born, the Messiah would be born, the Savior would be born where? In Bethlehem. He predicted it in Micah chapter 5. I was reading in the prophet Zechariah this week, my readings, and there's a beautiful verse at the end of chapter 3 of Zechariah, and uh, God is speaking, and he's saying these are symbolic, these things are symbolic, and these people are symbolic of things to come, and I will remove the sin of the land in a single day. What a prediction! That God would remove sin on one day. And that one day we know as Good Friday, the day Jesus was crucified. But God planned this and God predicted this. Paul is reveling in the gospel because God had already revealed his plans and purposes to the world. And then Paul is reveling in the gospel because of who the gospel is really about. He says in verse 3, the gospel was regarding his son, who was to his earthly life was a descendant of David. There you are. That's, what, that's who he was re- reveling in. It was the message about a person. It was a message about Jesus. You know the old story. you've probably been told it uh, many times about the child that asks the pastor, "What's the Bible all about?" And I remember reading in, in, in one book, I read this story you have to think about it overnight so she went back in the next day and he he got an answer for her the bible is all about Jesus and that's the good news the good news is the lord Jesus Christ who he is it says he was declared to be the son of God with power but he also as we read here about his human nature there was this unique person who came into the world Uh, We're told that the Son of God, who was equal with the Father, humbled himself and was prepared to come and be born here. God, the Son from all eternity, was prepared to come here and live in this world that had rebelled against him. This God-man, this unique person had come, and the good news is all about this, this person. Amazing, that God the Son, who's been offended, as well as God the Father and God the Spirit, offended by the world's wickedness and sin, God the Son is determined to come here. Someone has said, down from his glory, ever-living story, my God and Savior came, Jesus was his name, born in a manger to his own a stranger, a man of sorrows, tears and agony. What condescension! Bringing us redemption. they in the dead of night, and not one faint hope in sight. God, gracious, tender, laid aside his splendor, stooping to woo, to win my soul. Without reluctance, flesh and blood his substance. He took the form of man, revealed the hidden plan. Oh, glorious mystery, sacrifice of Calvary, and now I know thou art the great I am. And so, he, it's no wonder he sings, oh, how I love him, how I adore him, my breath, my sunshine, my all in all. The great creator became my savior and all God's fullness dwells in him. The gospel is all about Jesus. If you never understood that before, my dear friends, you should understand that today. The gospel, the good news of the gospel is all about Jesus. And it's all about Jesus, not only because of who he is, but what he's done. What's he done? What, what, I think there's, two, two, in a sense, two things here we're told. Uh, about what he's done for us. He has procured salvation. And he has provided for us a righteousness that we don't have. And we could never deserve or never earn. That's what Romans, in a sense, is all about. It's about what Jesus did. And if you look at verse 3 there, regarding his son who was to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, you'll notice there's, there's nothing said about his death there. And there's very little said about his death in chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. But if you read on uh, from chapter 3, verse 21 onwards, you'll see that virtually... Uh, chapter 3 verse 21 into chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6 chapter 7, chapter 8 is virtually all about the death of Jesus so that the gospel is good news because Jesus went to the cross deliberately according to God's will and procured salvation for us, he purchased salvation for us as he went to the cross and took upon himself God's wrath. You remember him crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Well, God was pouring out his wrath that we deserve on Jesus. That's why the good news is about Jesus. It's because he has purchased our salvation for us. He has paid all that has been necessary for us to know God. And he has provided for us a righteousness which is not our own. For in the gospel, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness is by faith from first to last. Just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. The wonderful thing about the gospel is this, my dear friends, that when we trust in Jesus Christ, our sins are credited to Jesus. And his righteousness is credited to us. So that we... Can come, have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Jesus procured, purchased salvation, and provided a righteousness for us so that we could have our sins forgiven and we could be at peace with God. And and this gospel is amazing because it's all of God's grace. It's all of God's grace. It's it's nothing to do with what we do. And this word grace will appear throughout the letter. In verse 7, to all in Rome who loved by God and called to be his holy Grace and peace to you. Why does Paul greet them in this way? Because that's what the gospel is. It's saying this, that you can't earn your way to God. You can't deserve it. God freely Give salvation to those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He freely gives it. Grace is God's undeserved love for those who have offended him. Oh, this is all of God's grace. That's why he revels in the gospel. And he revels in the gospel because it's the power of God. That's what he says in verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God that saves a bendigo, isn't it? Uh, But it's the power of God that needed to save me. And if you're a Christian this morning, it was the power of God that saved you, that convinced you of the truth of the gospel, that convicted you of your sin and changed your heart. It's the power of God. That's why he revels in the gospel. This gospel is life giving, it's life changing. Paul himself had experienced on the road to Damascus. Opposed to God, opposed to Christ, hating Christ, going to arrest Christians in Damascus, and suddenly he stopped, and the power of God takes hold of him, changes him, makes him a new person. That's why Paul revels in the gospel, because it's a gospel that is powerful. It changes lives. It can change your life today. So how do we finish this morning? Well, first of all, I'd say this. Paul is really saying here that he's absolutely compelled to preach the gospel. He can't do anything else other than preach the gospel. And so really, he's saying to us, have confidence as Christians. Have confidence in the gospel. The gospel will do its work. The gospel will do its work. He has seen the gospel do its work in many different places. And God has continued down through the centuries to do this great work of salvation, have confidence in the gospel. God's at work to the Jews and to the Gentiles. Throughout the world, today, there will be people who will experience the power of the gospel changing in their life. So have confidence in the gospel. But secondly, quite clearly, We must give all our energies to proclaiming this gospel, mustn't we? We must proclaim this gospel. And that involves us all. We must witness personally. When people ask you for the hope that you have. Why is it that you go to church? Why is it that you're a Christian? Well, you can give them an answer. It's it's all because of the gospel. You can give them, you can witness to them. We do it when we live out our lives as, as Christian people. We live out the gospel. We proclaim it by the way we live. We're light and salt in the world. And preachers must preach the gospel. Preachers must engage with people where they are and proclaim this gospel. We must tell all the world of Jesus. Remember how Andrew met Jesus? And then what did he do? He went to his brother, Peter. Come and find him. There's a guy, there's a family I know in Jersey, and uh, I think he's five children, grown up. Only the youngest was converted, and even recently he's turned away for a time. And then suddenly on New Year's Eve, their eldest, who'd shown no interest in the gospel whatsoever, who'd lived a pagan lifestyle, rebelled throughout his life in his 30s. God awakens him at night, brings him to his knees. Crying out for salvation. Immediately. Instantly. He's now persuaded his next brother down to go to church with him. (laughs) That's the gospel, you see. We must tell people the gospel. And we must pray for the success of the gospel. We must pray for the success of the gospel. So have confidence in the gospel. Proclaim the gospel, pray for the gospel, but also, my dear friends, this morning, if you don't know that you're saved, that you don't know you're a Christian, trust, because this salvation, we're told, is by faith in Jesus Christ. Come to him, put your trust in him today. It's no wonder Paul reveled in the gospel. Let's sing a great hymn on the gospel, shall we? The power of the cross.